May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable to you. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Good morning and happy Sunday. My name is Tom Breidenthal, and it is an honor, if somewhat daunting, to stand before you today. When Margaret and I returned home to Portland after what seems like a lifetime, I was blessed to find the space I needed here to regroup spiritually and to remember how wonderful it is to go to church in the same place every week. You have done for us what good cathedrals do so well. Thank you. We have heard two healing stories today. I'd like to focus this morning on the first one, about Naaman the leper. Now, as you probably know, most healing stories in the Bible are about something else. In the Gospels, they're often about Jesus breaking the rules. But throughout the Bible, including the Gospels, they are usually a commentary on privilege, social status, and our fear of losing whatever privilege we may have. Certainly, the dynamic of privilege lies at the heart of Naaman's story. Naaman is what you might call a five-star general in the army of the king of Aram, Israel's arch enemy, present-day Syria. The action begins when his wife's Israelite slave girl, who had been captured by the Arameans in a raid, suggests that Naaman's leprosy could be healed by the great Israelite prophet and wonder worker Elisha, not to be confused with Elijah, his mentor and teacher. Naaman decides to give it a try. I think the ensuing drama would make a great graphic novel. <laughs> there is the young girl kidnapped and enslaved, perhaps seizing a chance to secure her place in her master's household. How might one draw her face as she dares to draw attention to Naaman's disfigurement? Then there are the two kings, the Aramean one relishing another chance to humiliate his counterpart, and the Israelite one sweating bullets as he reads his letter. Am I God to give life or death that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. By now, it is obvious that this story is interested in power. And who has it? Authority, and who deserves it? Legitimacy, and who confers it? Enter Naaman, who shows up at Elisha's door with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 garments prepared to pay handsomely for a medical miracle. No doubt he's been looking forward to meeting the great prophet. But Elisha doesn't even come out to welcome him. So there's no meeting, no chance to pay, no choice but to follow the instructions he is given and to head off for the Jordan, dismissed. No wonder he's angry, perhaps also feeling put to shame. Is the prophet avoiding touching him because he is a leper? But there's more to Naaman's anger than this. It's not only that his pride has been hurt, 
but that his entitlement has not been recognized. He is a man of immense privilege and power, fully aware that he represents a regime just this far from seizing Israel and reducing it to a vassal state. We may assume he has come to Elisha with his chariots and horsemen, not so much to show respect, but to dazzle him and to threaten. Yes, he has come to be healed, but let's not forget, he seems to say, that in every other respect, it is Elisha's nation that is in need, not his. And when it comes to him and Elisha, which one is the greater? We learn Naaman's answer when in his fury, the contempt he feels comes pouring out. Contempt for the Israelites, for their prophet, for their precious little river, and for their God. I'm embarrassed to say that I've caught myself more than once feeling like Naaman. I hope it didn't show. <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, I was running across Lovejoy at 9th Avenue against the light and almost knocked down a woman on the other side. I assume she was homeless, but I'm not sure. Of course, I apologized. Please excuse me, I'm so sorry, I cried. She answered, honey, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Now, one should surely hear that reply as an expression of kindliness, perhaps even as a blessing. And maybe I did, but it annoyed me nevertheless. Where did she get off speaking to me as though I had done something wrong? Worse yet, she assumed I would, I would worry about it. I would worry about it, but that was not for her to say. Still less, who was she to excuse me for anything? She was the loser, not me. With no authority to confer a forgiveness I had not really asked for. But back to Naaman. The story could well conclude here with a cautionary moral. When we ask others for help or simply for their indulgence, beware of the terms on which we are asking. That is, beware of the privilege you actually have and the ready contempt for others that is its counterpart. That's good advice, but not very helpful. Not helpful because it offers no antidote for chronic arrogance. And that is because there really isn't any antidote for that. We're going to have to get around it some other way, but more of that later. Anyway, thank God the story doesn't end there. Naaman returns home in disgust, but when he gets there, his slaves, who seem to have real affection for him, talk him back, talk him into going back and doing what Elisha said. Father, they say, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said was, wash and be clean? Surprisingly enough, he does do what his slaves say, a sign perhaps of the transformation awaiting him after he is healed. He immerses himself seven times in the Jordan, and as the text puts it, his flesh is restored 
like the flesh of a young boy. But even now, Naaman isn't about to stop clinging to his privilege. He only obeys Elisha, and we should note his slaves, because his despair proves greater than his self-importance. It is his leprosy, or his shame in the face of it, that drives him to the water. And although the Jordan washes his leprosy away, the old strategies for maintaining the upper hand are still very much in play. When Naaman comes back to thank Elijah, it's once again with all his company, that is, with his horses, his chariots, his retinue, his ten talents of silver, his six shekel, 6,000 shekels of gold, and let's not forget the ten pieces of clothing. Maybe not as a show of force this time, maybe not to threaten, but surely to save face. He then goes on to try something clearly intended to preserve his standing in Elisha's eyes. He attempts to make payment for service rendered. Please accept a present from your servant, he urges. But under the circumstances, we know he's really needing to make things even. After all, why the show of gold and silver and the ten garments? Unfortunately, our lectionary cuts off the reading just short of this, which is too bad because this is right where Naaman's story really takes off. First of all, Elisha vehemently rejects Naaman's offer of a gift. Indeed, he takes offense at it. As the Lord lives whom I serve, I will accept nothing. Naaman presses him to take the offer, but eventually gives up. Then, after what I imagine as a long silence, Naaman asks Elijah for two mule loads of earth so he can worship God on Israelite soil when he returns to Damascus. What are we to make of this? Does this just reflect the ancient view that a national God's sway only extends as far as the territory of his people? In fact, that can't be what Naaman is thinking, because what he says next assumes God will be just as present in Damascus as he is in Israel. Naaman wants to be assured that God will forgive him when he bows down before Rimon, the god of Aram, as he will surely be constrained to do by virtue of his position in the royal court. May the Lord pardon your servant on one account. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. Naaman is acknowledging that Adonai, the God of Israel, is present everywhere and will witness him seeming to worship another God. The realization that there is one God who is close to us no matter where we are reflects a remarkable advance in religious faith. But more remarkable still is that Naaman wants this all-powerful and gratuitously tender God near him, literally 
as the ground under his feet. To this, Elijah simply answers, go in peace. What has happened here? Naaman has not been freed from privilege. Those of us who have it know how intractable the habit of privilege is and how deformed the will that keeps trying to hold on to it. Before I render judgment on the driver who doesn't stop for me in the crosswalk, I will always check to see what they look like and tailor my response accordingly. This happens before I think, like an involuntary tick. And that, I suppose, is because privilege comes from a place in me that is both utterly myself and utterly impossible for me to govern. It is fueled by our bone-deep fear of our boundless connection to absolutely everybody. That is why simply choosing not to exercise privilege doesn't solve the problem. Privilege precedes and shapes all our attitudes to one another before we know it and blinds us to the truth that we can't pick and choose whom we're related to. Nevertheless, Naaman has begun to learn another path. He has experienced what we might these days call beloved community. In that community, AKA the kingdom of God, there is no winning or losing, but the back and forth of giving and receiving, teacher and student, lover and beloved, courage and timidity, the constant exchanges of strength and weakness of which all systems of privilege are the abuse and the corruption. When we are touched by the beloved community, whatever name it goes by, nothing is the same. That's good news, but the sequel may be harder to accept. It involves the daily and exhaustingly repetitious work of catching ourselves in our privilege, repenting of it, and letting Jesus and the Holy Spirit make each painful discovery a teachable moment. This is a lifelong process. It's relentless because it is so exacting, like running laps or playing scales or saying, child of God, every time I, cons I consign some miscreant to hell. When I get sick of this work and wish I could just get holy and be done with it, it helps me to remember that while we're baptized only once, we can take communion thousands and thousands of times. That's because Eucharist is the food that sustains us as the power of God's love slowly but surely takes possession of our lives. I wish it were easier. Even communion can seem perfunctory at times. Sometimes the best we can do is to keep hauling our cartload of earth around, by which I mean our memory of the place where the ground beneath our feet turned holy until we learn that that ground is everywhere. 
beloved community is all around us, on the streets, in the news, even in church. Listen for the discounted voices. Listen for the unsolicited blessings. There's help for you. Go, see. If you were told to do something easy, wouldn't you do it? And finally, you're fine, honey. Don't worry about it. <laughs> May it be so. Amen.